This is Forbes Under 30 on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Goldblum. On this show, we talk to young innovators, disruptors, and entrepreneurs. Today, I'm speaking with Jeffrey Martin. He's the founder of Honor Code, which is a company working to bring coding education to teachers and students in public schools. Last year, Honor Code won the Forbes Change the World competition. Hey, Jeffrey, how you doing? Doing well. Nice to finally um, meet via Skype. <laughs> yes, you too. So first of all, congratulations to you. Uh, Forbes changed the world. It really took a, took a big investment in you. What did that feel like to have that kind of support uh, behind your baby, Honor Code? We just didn't expect to, want, let alone make it to be one of the semifinalists and then one of the finalists and then also win it. Yeah. It was one of those moments that even on stage, I didn't really process it fully until I got back to my Airbnb later on that afternoon. <laughs> was it was it a sense of um, uh, 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 of pure joy, or, or was there a sense of oh my gosh, now we need to execute on on a on a plan, and we're about to get a ton of exposure, or was mm-hmm. it a bit of both? So it was definitely a bit of both. Two months before that, we had just locked in our first client around our teacher training. And then I'm also still a full-time teacher at the same school just to kind of make ends meet for my team. And it ended up winning. We got all of, it was a lot of media attention that happened locally that we had to go through. But I would also say that us winning the competition also helped sharpen our focus a lot. For a while, I thought I was only going to be able to just talk about the computer science aspects. But once that, once we won, I was like, okay, awesome. So now I get to talk about the computer science stuff and also now have the funding to help support our social emotional learning that we're trying to, I guess, partner with this computer science access. You know, knowing in Atlanta right now that a little less than 5% of Atlanta public schools teach computer science and also with our city having high tech urban centers being here in Atlanta, there's just so many different combinations of needs that are within our schools so that we can actually galvanize behind the amount of opportunity that our city has between us being third in financial tech, also being one of the big players within the cybersecurity market space. There's a lot of opportunities for folks here in the city. Right, and I want to get to your experience in, in Atlanta. I mean, you, you describe Atlanta as the next Silicon Valley, you know, that, that there's 20,000 programming jobs in Georgia with an average salary of 85,000. You know, it's, it's the sixth fastest-growing startup city in America, and yet, as you say, less than 5% of Atlanta's public schools teach coding, in class. It, it was, so talk about that gap that you were trying to fill with Honor Code. This gap right now, and I guess just being very plain and candid, we have, our city is doing so wonderful. I know you kind of went through and given the stats, but we're third in financial tech. We bring in about $34 billion in annual revenue for the state. Atlanta's getting ready to invest another $1 billion within the technology um, right. the technology industry that we have here. But the fact of the matter is, despite all of this booming technology space that we do have, there aren't enough Black and Latinos who are from this city that are actually getting trained to get those jobs. And this opportunity, knowing that so few schools do this, there's so much money getting pumped into coding boot camps. And some of these, myself having went through one of these, um, what the coding boot camps end up having a a price tag on them of about $12,000. So 
immediately right there, you're already closing out a certain group of folks who can't afford to pay for these things. Now, though that they can't afford it, that doesn't mean that they don't have the ability to learn these concepts. And I get to see this every single day with the 40 students that I get to lead in computer science who have never seen it before. So in terms of this opportunity, I know that Atlanta as a city, we're doing very, very well in this industry. I want to see the diversity happen within those spaces so that we can truly get the diversity in the tech, firm, the tech firms that we talk about. One of the concept papers that happened with Honor Code, it, it, I actually got started once Google released their diversity report. And as a consumer, I love all of Google's products, but when I ended up finding out that they didn't have the diversity within their software engineering teams and also on some of their upper leadership, this is what gave the impetus behind driving this. And Atlanta just had the huge opportunity and the demand to actually see something like Honor Code come to fruition. And people talk a lot about culture fit in the Valley, which is also a shorthand for everyone looks the exact same. <laughs> uh, you know, right? Because as you say, there's, I mean, that price point to learn coding. What, what, which class, which course did you take? So I took the front end engineering class and I was, um, I am an alumni of the Iron Yard. So we learned HTML, CSS, JavaScript, um, a few of the, uh, learn how to do more backend oriented things to make us a, make us full stack developers. So it was a really, really interesting journey. And a lot of things that I tell my students often, even though I went through that coding boot camp, that was something that I struggled with a lot because I had never really been exposed to computer science myself around what, September 2015. That's when I started learning. And can you tell me how diverse was that group that you were in? So in the class of about what, 35, 40 individuals, I was one of maybe five or six people of color in that group. Mm -hmm. And they also do a lot of recruiting in regards to diversity in that space, too, and also offer scholarships. I want to move into your background. Uh, mm -hmm. Growing up in Atlanta, you talk a lot about um, the trauma in your life. You know, that you say that trauma takes you off your game. You've said that before. It doesn't give you – there's a lack of access points. So I want to ask you what you meant by that and if you could just describe, you know, what your, what your childhood and upbringing looked like. So I had one of the uh, – I had one of the unfortunate circumstances of inheriting one of America's broken homes. Um, I grew up with two drug-addicted parents. Trauma is something that we don't talk enough about, um, especially when we're talking about students from low socioeconomic backgrounds and more specifically black and Latinos and like women and LGBTQ folks there. And just from personal experience. And I also think just highlighting the aspect of, um, I don't, I don't know if you got a chance to see the Oscars, but moonlight winning best picture. I did. Yeah. That was a huge, huge moment because that movie only tells a snippet of what happens in spaces like that, whether you are dealing with drug addicted parents, you don't really have good access to health care. You know, you're getting right. bullied at a school that <laughs> you and myself and having went through these experiences myself of being bullied as a queer person trying to just go and learn. There's so many things that students deal with both inside and outside of schools that a lot of teachers don't know these things. And we're, in addition to us and, and again, going back to some of the work that we're doing with Honor Code, we know that this technical skill is something that will lead to folks having more 
how would you say, skills to participate in this local economy that we have here in Atlanta and also across the world, given the culture shifts that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. This social emotional component is what is going to make those students go from good to great. And hey, though I'm going through all of these things at home, I have a team here at school and yeah. they're accountable to me and they're helping me get through these things. And though I won't always be at 100%, I at least know that I have this safety net. I know that that's a, uh, yeah, that's probably that there, there's a lot to unpack with that. And Honor Code is just one of those things where I get to take all of the learnings from all of my teachers and all of my principals and all of those folks who, I guess, stood behind me as an individual going through all these things and actually helped yeah. folks get blueprints to do this themselves. I'm glad that you bring up Moonlight, too, because personally, it was one of my favorite movies. It, it was my favorite movie of the year, and it was... Uh, heartwarming to see the win and, and actually exhilarating to, to learn about the win, the way that it unfolded. We should note that this is 48 hours after the Oscar broadcast that we're recording this. So what, what did that feel like for you, that, the, the, watching that film uh, earn Best Picture the way that it was announced? That was a story, and specifically in Atlanta, where the, predomin- the students who are predominantly in Atlanta public schools are those who are black. That win gave me hope for folks who grew up like I did. Right. And just having that visibility, this ripple in this microcosm of something that hasn't been talked about of like identity and specifically issues of understanding sexual orientation, but within the classroom, we're starting to see people wanting to talk about this more. Right. And also just being one of those teachers, I am so... It, it, it gets me every single morning when I get to get up and I know that those I do have students who do identify like that in my classroom and they get to see value in themselves and mm-hmm. also be like, oh, whoa. So like my teacher is queer and he's over here teaching these days. and He's also teaching us computer science. I didn't have that growing up. I didn't really have a lot of out teachers, given that I also lived in the South. Right. So. It, the the win in all of my my ranting and that win was huge and, and when, I don't know what's gonna come in the future for it but I also know that there're gonna be a lot of good things given the things that I'm seeing here. Well, it felt so important too because you also don't know how how often a movie like that is gonna come around. What what was it that you think puts you on a path to go to Wharton to go to Brown um, to earn these prestigious scholarships? Uh, that you ended up using to come back, to come back to where you're from. What was what was the moment for you that allowed you to break out of a cycle of whether it was addiction or trauma that you were experiencing? Mm-hmm. So, and this is kind of taking us taking me back to when I was about a fifth grader. <laughs> um, my mom and my parents they often had a lot of different huh, fights and whatnot, and also haven't been a person that's been homeless before too. So. We, my mom was doing, uh, doing a temporary job at a FedEx and she ended up meeting my godmom and my godmom at that time, her father had passed away the year beforehand and they ended up having a vacant home. And my mom and I ended up renting that home from her, especially given that they were coworkers too. Um, around fifth grade times, I was a very shy kid. (laughs) Um, I also knew that I was very different. I also knew that my circumstances were very different. Um, I vividly remember times in middle school where my dad would come in 
and I would have to do his um, drug urine test for him. And in, mm. in the in the mind of a young fifth, sixth grader, seventh grader, on to eighth grade, this is the things that I had to do. My, the, the the things that I had to balance in my head was like, okay, so if I don't do this urine test for my parents, then like we won't make my dad won't make money, and then we won't have utilities and stuff at home, you know. And it wasn't like I had everything that like there were winters where I didn't have jackets or any of these things. And so, going back to my godmom, she really really saw this. Um, and her and her mom, who, who I was telling, she her mom ended up passing away two Septembers ago, and that's when I came back to actually start Honor Code. But that family took me in, and I honestly, to sit here and tell you this, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have went to Drew Charter School, where I'm currently teaching, and that's one of the partners at uh, that with Honor Code. Um, I wouldn't have gotten a full ride scholarship to go to Paideia which really, really opened my world and exposed me to different class structures and things in the city and also the world. Um, I wouldn't have met a, I wouldn't have gotten the education I would have gotten and also met a woman who connected me and actually paid for my, one of my first college trips to go to Penton. Um, So it all stems down going back to my godmom and also her mom. And so Miss Faye and her mom is um, Mrs. Martin. Even just you sitting here asking this question, it just kind of all just sat in on me. But if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be on this call chatting with you right now. <laughs> Do you think that that is what got you ready? Because one of the things that you've talked about is you you talk about luck, you know, equaling um, preparation and opportunity. And I, I always say you have to be ready to be lucky. You're ready for luck. Where did you, when did that philosophy enter your life? Did you feel like you were always... Do you feel like it was luck for you or, 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 or preparation? And where does that expression come from for you? So for me, wow, yes. Um, I would have to say that that is all my godmom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a fifth grader, I showed her my report card. And I was one of those students that had straight A's. But when it went down to conduct, because I wasn't being fully challenged at my school, like at fourth or fifth grade, I was taking, no, at fourth grade, I was taking pre-algebra. And I should have been taking algebra one as a fifth grader, but the public school that I went to couldn't offer it. So I didn't end up taking the reg- the class that I needed to until eighth grade. But my godmom had me at what the summer of my summer before my sixth grade year. And all of my friends were outside, like doing playing and playing video games and doing all this stuff. I had to write a five paragraph essay every single day. I was reading Flannery O'Connor, <sighs> all of these big literature folks that you see people study for in college, she for not necessarily forced me, but she nudged me to take my academics really, really seriously, knowing the home situation I was in. Right. And from there, the rest of his history. <laughs> I actually was just cleaning up and going through some of my opens the other day and I <laughs> ran up on some of these old essays that I used to write in my really, really funny handwriting and she would grade them and give me feedback and we would talk about them. When you left uh, Atlanta, you go to, to to Penn and you go to Brown and you have a brief experience on, you know, you worked at Goldman Sachs uh, for a little while after school, I think in the summer. That was another route that you could have taken in your life and, and gone after some big money. You know, you I'm sure you made a ton of connections at those schools, which, as you know, propels you into another career for the rest of your life. Did you always know you were going to go back home? Oh, my goodness. I thought when I left Atlanta, 
back in 2009 that I was going to go to Penn for four years and then I was going to move out to the West Coast in, in, in San Francisco for yeah. 10 and then I was going to move back to Atlanta. That was like my plan. So I was <laughs> going out West. At that point in time, I wasn't interested in tech. I just knew like, oh, California is like this wonderful state that I've never been to. <laughs> <laughs> and so to properly answer your question, I didn't know I was going to come back to Atlanta. Had it not been for um, Mrs. Martin, we had gotten, she had gotten really, really ill. Um, she ended up passing away September 2015 of Alzheimer's. Had that not happened, I wouldn't have came back to Atlanta. And also just the time at Wharton, time at Goldman, the time with Teach for America, and the time with um, Brown University, I had learned a lot in six years. And I started to realize that even though I grew up having a marginalized life that I did, I knew that in comparison to folks from my community, I had been given a huge, huge opportunity. And, you know, after tons of meditation and reflection, and I also got into a fellowship that was housed between Penn and Columbia, and it's called the um, Penn Social Impact House. Mm. Um, it was around, and that was what, August of 2015? That was when I knew that I wanted to come back home and actually see what I could do to help with some of the educational things that are happening within the city. And Atlanta has, is having a ton of things, but I didn't think I was going to come back. And now being back, it has been one of the best decisions that I have ever made in my entire life is coming back home and working within my community mm -hmm. and just working with the same teachers that helped me. Well, tell me how old you are, Jeffrey. I'm 26. You've crammed so much into your life. You're, you're such a young person. Yet when you hear your story, you realize how quickly you had to grow up. And then it kind of starts to make sense uh, where you're at in terms of your career and the abilities that you have to, to make a difference. I know you did suffer from depression mm -hmm. uh, growing up. Can you, can you talk about breaking out of funks and, and working your way out of depression and recognizing that disorder in other people when you go back and when you teach. Yeah. And it's, also, it's, a, it's a bit of depression and anxiety, I think. Yeah. So both depression and anxiety and also just other thoughts that happened for me, given the, the, given the things that I've been through. Um, when I was teaching in Rhode Island, I had a wonderful, wonderful manager that took care of me at a school that was really, really hard to be at. You know, at that point in time, I was a special education teacher. I was doing a lot of things with math and I was the I was instructing math and I was the um, only black Spanish speaking teacher for the predominantly black Spanish speaking population that that school had. And my manager saw how every time I would go and instruct my kids and I didn't feel like I was doing enough for them and I was actually not being the teacher that they need to be, that would really, really way on me. You know, at this point in time, I'm looking at my students and have been to their homes and have met with their parents. And I'm sitting here as a teacher who could have went to Goldman Sachs. And if I really, really wanted to, I could have called to Atlanta, got my connections, and I could have ended up having another job at Goldman Sachs or at Coca-Cola and just completely leaving that community. And that weighed on me really, really hard. And I started therapy in about at, um, in 2015, Kept going from 2015 and also ended up getting into psychotherapy to help me get through some of my parental oriented traumas based on a lot of stuff that mm -hmm. I talked about. And if there is one thing that and it's just another driver behind why we're trying to pump these social emotional learning components into the classroom, there needs to be more conversations of mental health. 
specifically with our students. We deal with so much as students and also as teachers trying to help students. And there are, quite frankly, if I had it my way, I would make sure that every single school had psychologists within them, not as a way to diagnose students left and right, but as a way of helping students heal. Um, there are so many things that you don't know. And I know my manager just knew that I was getting upset all the time and like was really sad and didn't feel like I would come to work. I would do all of my job stuff and then I would go home and just lay in the bed and stare at the ceiling. And I would wake up the next morning at 4 a.m. and I didn't have to be at work till 7. And I really had to work through that stuff. And the thing that got me up every single morning when I was doing that, it's still one of the things that gets me up every single day now are my kids. Those are the folks that are going to be shaping the world. And I want to make sure that the students that I work with, regardless of what their backgrounds is, what their incomes is, what what their families do, like I want to make sure that at least in my classroom that they are being prepared to actually just be happy and to to just learn because that's ultimately what we're doing for them as students. I, I hope I I hope I got to the properly answering that question yeah well i know and i and i you know jeffrey i looked at some material of you on online and um there's this i don't know if you're aware of this there's a video shot in the back on a cell phone of you giving a lecture at your former high school um i think it was last spring and uh you that so that was my uh that's a deep google i did a little deep googling yeah, that, that was Jude. They just added a high school. But yeah, I was giving a talk there. Yes. Now, what's that like for you to return to your high school and see those kids? Can you see yourself? Do you see yourself in some of those students? Oh, every single day. Yeah. <laughs> every single day. I mean, and again, like I live right down the street from my um, the school that I teach at. Yeah. What? So, oh, it is one of the biggest honors to work with those minds every single day. There's a great moment. There's a great moment when you're um, t- giving your lecture, and it says a lot about you. And I, I remember it that they, the somebody starts talking, or kids are coming in and out, and you just looked up. You said, "I'll wait," <laughs> and I thought, "Wow, that okay." He's 25, and he's already got the gravitas here. Uh, and they did. They stopped immediately. <laughs> did you always have that those skills? I mean, it really is. Those are leadership skills that are they seemed really innate. Some would say that I've always had that, but I don't think I had that skill until I started teaching. And this is what my fourth year now. Yeah, so that, that was something that has been cultivated over the past few years. And it's still one of those things of just respect, you know, right. something I tell my students now, like, hey, we will always respect one another, and this is how we're going to get things done. And it's always been nothing but respect with my students. I rarely have disruptions and things in my classroom, and we always have a fun environment. So that's really interesting right. you, you were able to see that. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Jordan Harbinger. For the last 10 years, I've successfully helped people build their self-confidence with my Art of Charm podcast. And now, along with Art of Charm, I'm hosting a new show. It's Podcast One's latest program, The Forbes List. On the show, we talk to the Forbes editors that curate their famous and respected lists, like self-made richest people, billionaires, and highest-paid athletes. We'll get behind-the-scenes insight and information that doesn't make the print cut. So please subscribe on iTunes to the Forbes list, and don't forget to rate us, review, and share. Do you consider Atlanta the beta test right now for Honor Code? 
That's a great question. So on, on certain aspects, yes, because I know that the needs that are here in Atlanta are seen in cities like Philadelphia, Memphis, New Orleans, D.C., Chicago, Oakland. So in terms of beta tests and seeing how this works here in this space, yes, but I am really, really hoping for Honor Code to continue to scale to help more folks. And I do say this, like I want Atlanta to be the Silicon Valley, not of the Southeast, but for it, where right. all in an ideal world, all of the students who went through Honor Code would go into these various different pathways where they come back and they reinvest in their cities. There is a beautiful part about us getting a lot of these companies that are coming into this space. But when folks are getting pushed out of those cities and they're not able to engage economically and also politically in those spaces, what did those cities actually become? Mm -hmm. And so that's something in terms of beta testing and also just knowing that Atlanta, even with all of our civil rights history, this is a, a great place to see how this type of work can be done in other spaces. Why did you want to become a teacher? Mm. My teacher saved my life. Right. And what an honor to pay respect to them and all of their hard work. It's such an honor to be considered in the same profession with them. Well, you can feel the respect that you have for teaching, especially because Honor Code really is aimed at teachers, right? You're preparing them to sort of relay these uh, these skill sets in terms of coding inside the classroom, right? You're weaving coding yeah. into the public school system. Yes, we are teachers first. Now, I know Honor Code, we can sit here and hire a whole team of different teachers and put us all in all of these different schools. But those teachers are the experts of, of rallying behind their students and guiding them. And anything that we can do to help support them and in their instruction and in their love for their students, that is what Honor Code is here for. And you say educators first, coders second, right? Mm -hmm. Uh -huh. Exactly. And so how do you meet the teachers where they're at? Because you say that if they're teaching the humanities or if they're teaching history, they can use and leverage coding. So how does that work for them? The, the intro to how we get teachers started in understanding what computer science and like web development is, we start them in Scratch, which is this um, visual coding-based language based from our friends at, out at MIT. And one of the teachers that we're training right now, she's a kindergarten teacher. And they were doing some sort of exploratory activity where kids were learning about um, a specific animal as kindergartners. We had been working with her for about a semester. And then at the end of the, what, around December, she had trained five other teachers <sighs> in her kindergarten group. And they ended up rolling out a science exploration project where their kindergartners got to use Scratch as a way of storytelling about the information that they learned about penguins and pandas. And it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. In addition to that, she went a step further and um, she connected those videos to a QR code where you would be able to scan it with your phone and it takes you immediately to the video and the animations that the students had created. Oh, so that's in turn, there, there's so many different ways and we are learning things at rapid speed and what teachers are able to do here. Teachers are some of the coolest folks and they are really, really using this information as a toolkit for them to help reach more of their learners. Well, let me ask you this, and you might you might have dealt with this with your years at Teach for America, because there is this 
impression of Teach for America with all the good that it does, that there are sometimes the teachers that kind of like parachute in to difficult scenarios and parachute out almost as quickly as they got there back to the Goldman Sachs jobs, you know, and you, you don't seem to be, you don't strike me as that case. You're really making investments in places that have a, a great meaning to you. But has there been pushback at all when you come in and you're 25 and you've gone to these faraway places and you come in and are, they, are some teachers saying, hey, listen, we have, a, we have a system here and you're trying to disrupt our system. And how do you deal with that? That has not happened to us. <laughs> Um, Very we nice. <laughs> work really, really, really closely with our schools and also their teachers, and it's very responsive to what they want. So, again, just to give you the average tenure of teachers that we train, the bulk of our teachers have been in the classroom seven plus years. All right. right. This is something that they want. <laughs> this is something that they actually believe in. And we meet them where they are and we push them to where they want to go. So we actually haven't had any I was a negative feedback on some of our stuff. Now, granted, we've only been around for 18 months and we are working with what one school right now and one after school service provider. I can almost guarantee you that we that will probably be a challenge that we will have to address as we continue to mm-hmm. scale. Yeah. But the way that we survey schools before we bring them on, we meet their teachers, we send them, we put them through um, facilitations to kind of see like, hey, where would this learning, how can this learning help you? And what are some of the concerns that you have? We're really, really responsive to what they need. Well, let's talk about the scalability of Honor Code. How many people are on the staff right now? How big is the team? So the team consists of myself and my one of my founding team members. <laughs> And that is it. Oh, my goodness. So already here, I have to ask, um, someone like you, and I'm not just saying this to be uh, to flatter you, although it's nice to do, uh, that you, 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 know, you are so talented and you're kind of all alone with your partner in this. It can be hard to, when it is your baby, let it go. Because you, you know, because you have this unique experience that that conditioned you to this job. So, how do you create those conditions and repeat those conditions in a way that is going to have a greater impact, but is also going to take you away from the project? Right now, um, I'm in a fellowship here in the city with the Center for Civic Innovation, and um, we've been working with it's myself and six other social enterprises. And we have been going through exactly what you're saying of how are you planning on scaling this? How are you going to end up dealing with your board? How do you bring on a fundraising team? How are you aligning with some of the corporate initiatives that are going on to actually fund some of the work that you're doing for schools that can't afford some of these services? Right. And right now, it is my goal that by June, we will be bringing on two additional staff members. And I've been in a lot of good conversations with foundations here, and I've also been getting mentorship from them as well. And we also applied for a um, a grant that is hoping to take some of our learning into an ed tech space mm. with some of this um, curriculum design that we've been doing and also us learning so much from the different teachers that we work with. I am personally of the nature where when I bring on someone onto my team, I know that they have the purpose and that's something that we very much look in look to for our employees they also have to have desire to change and desire to change um things 
I, and you you caught me. Actually, I was just finishing up an interview with a wonderful woman who's actually she has been in the classroom double the time that I have. Yeah. And has been on boards and all of these different things. And so I am looking forward to getting this new team and them to help push me as a leader. Right. I don't think that I know everything and I would never even say that. But it takes more than just one or two people to see this type of change happen in our space. And we also consider the teachers that we train as part of our team. So they end up graduating with us in May. We're going to end up having 14 other people <laughs> who really, really <laughs> know our work and yep. can also speak for the things that we do and also continue to give us feedback on how to improve. So Honor Code is a really, really iterative space, especially given the environment of tech and computer science, which is always changing. I'm really, really looking forward to the new team members who would join so that we can really, really see what Honorco can be going into the 2017-2018 school year. That's really exciting. And, and is there a part of you, like you're making the curriculum more attractive and sophisticated and expansive um, in terms of what these students are going to be taking in? Are you at all focused on raising teacher pay, making these positions, recruiting talent, uh, and making these positions more attractive? So currently right now, I sit on a steering committee with the Department of Education here in Georgia for CS, um, edu- um, computer science education. Uh, and there are a lot of great minds and also influential people on this board. And I think I'm the only, Honorco's the only um, nonprofit of our nature to sit on that steering committee. We're on there with folks from Google, a few folks from the National Science Foundation. And so... These are definitely discussions that are being had. Um, I know right now in our state, in Gwinnett, Gwinnett County is right now um, doing a lot of interesting research on teacher pay and making teacher pay more competitive to incentivize folks to stay in the classroom more. Because, you know, over the first five years of a teacher's career, about 30 to 40 percent of the teachers end up leaving because of some related stress or just change of career path. So this is some. these are things that are happening currently right now on a policy level here in the state. And I'm hoping to eventually, you know, play a part in being one of those voices on that group, because that is definitely something that is on my mind. That way we can continue to have great talent within the classroom. Well, Jeffrey, you're you're it's so interesting uh, to look at your career and you're 26 years old. Do you think you know, if you you put your head down for five, 10 years and work on honor code, you're going to be in your mid 30s. Where do you where do you want to go next? Do you have any interest in politics? Would you ever consider running for office of any kind? This question has gotten asked to me a few times. Uh, I'm not surprised. I, <laughs> <laughs> I personally want to leave the uh, politics to the politicians. And um, as far as running for office, that would that's not something that would be on my docket of uh, aspirations. But I am definitely very interested and more so continuing this path of figuring out how folks in corporations could be a better resource to grassroots orgs and initiatives such as honor code well this is a great this is a great answer because you're keeping it open mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) very smart (laughs) well jeffrey i want to ask one more question of you sort of knowing what you know now with all your experiences if you could go back uh, and talk to yourself uh, at 10 years, at 10, when you were 10 years old, what, what do you think you would say? So I think one of the things that I would tell my 10-year-old self is, Jeff, you do not know what is going to happen next. 
stop freaking out about everything. <laughs> just study <laughs> and keep in and just stay focused. Um, you are going to meet so many people who are going to believe in you. And don't shrug off the things, the good things that people say because they have actually been telling you the truth and you haven't been wanting to believe it. So start believing the good things that people tell you, even though you're living in this situation that you're in, because it always is going to get better. And when it gets better, you're really not going to believe that then. Thank you so much. Honestly, it's incredible work you're doing. Thank y'all so much. Okay, take care. Y'all take care. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under 30. That's the number 30 at podcast1.com. Hey guys, David Smalley here, reminding you to check out Dogma Debate on the Podcast One app, iTunes, and basically everywhere else you could possibly hear a podcast. Dogma Debate is basically a way for you to peek in on conversations you've always wondered about. Say a hardcore anti-gay preacher meets an atheist who knows the Bible like the back of his hand, or a far-left social justice warrior meets a different kind of liberal who doesn't want to join in on the riots. On Dogma Debate, I talk to people who completely disagree with me, and I let them tell me why they think I'm wrong, why I should be on their team, and why they take such an extreme stance. And sometimes you'll just hear me hanging out with like-minded people and laughing during segments like Republicans Say the Darndest Things or Fact Check Yo Mama. It all happens on Dogma Debate, right here on Podcast One. It doesn't take a miracle to be wise with money, but it does take faith and a plan. At Thrivent, we help millions of Christians be wise with money with advice, insurance, banking, investments, and generosity. Visit Thrivent.com. Thrivent, be wise with money. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.